Okay, so it is um, recording. All right, well, welcome back, everybody, after a couple of weeks off. Uh, so we're going to start in uh, on church life, and, um, and sometimes what we've done so far, you could say, is sort of big picture as to why should I be a Christian at all. Um, but you might have the impression it's sort of just all about my belief in God and my following God as an individual. Uh, and a lot of times the way that the gospel is presented in, uh, in America in particular, uh, it comes across that way. It's just about me deciding about whether to follow God uh, and so on. Uh, but one of the things that you see in the Bible is that it's all about a body of people. It's all about you know, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament uh, or about the church in the New Testament. Uh, and it's really, for a lot of people, it's really a different way of thinking. Uh, you could call it, in general, sort of a corporate way of thinking, that um, we are part of a body of people. It's not just me and God, but it's us and God uh, together. And um, it's really something that is a sticking point and hard for a lot of Americans. There's a lot of Americans, and I don't know what the fraction is, but it's actually increasing. As much as you know, people are aware of sort of the American individualism and everybody kind of makes fun of American individualism, and yet, if anything, we're actually becoming more individualistic and more isolated as time goes on, uh, not less. Uh, part of that is because of the Internet, that I can sort of have all my needs taken care of by just you know, going on the Internet and never actually having to, to deal with people and so on. But um, the fraction of people who say things like, well, I'm spiritual but not religious, uh, or I uh, believe in Jesus but I don't believe in the organized church, uh, or things like that, um, that number is increasing. You know, 100 years ago, it would have, even in sort of the rugged individualistic American culture, where you're expected to you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and take care of your own needs, uh, it would have been obvious to people then that if you're a Christian, you go to church. Uh, and that was, you know, part of what it meant to be a Christian. These days, there's many, many more people uh, who would call themselves Christians who have no specific commitment to any particular church at all. They just, you know, might say, oh, I read my Bible from time to time, uh, and so on. Uh, so my first point, actually, would just be that whether you like it or not, uh, if you're united to Christ, you're united to other Christians. Uh, you know, so I'll make a little picture here on the board. You know, so uh, if we have Jesus and we're saying he's the vine and I'm connected to him by faith and we call this union with Christ, all right, uh, well, if somebody else is united to Christ, then guess what? We're united to each other, right? It's a spiritual fact that if we're united to each other, if we're both united to Christ, then we're both united to each other. It's an inescapable fact. Um, and another way to put it is to say, uh, if I disdain other Christians, then I'm basically disdaining Jesus because he's united to them. And he has seen fit to be united to them. And so I'm basically saying, well, God, my, my standards are higher than yours. <laughs> you know, I know you're willing to be linked to them, but I'm not. Uh, and so you're actually putting yourself above Jesus uh, in, in who you're willing to associate with. Uh, and so um, all throughout the ages, Christians have taught that the church is an essential part of what it means to be a Christian. It's not just a uh, sort of optional thing. And yet uh, on a regular basis, uh, when I talk to Christians 
from around the country of different ages and so on, a lot of times the way we evaluate churches is very much like users of a store uh, or something will say, well, um, uh, I like this church because uh, they teach me a lot of good things. Okay, And you think about that, that's a user mentality. That's saying that basically the church is there to provide me with a service, and if I feel like I'm getting enough of this uh, from them, then <clears throat> I'll stay committed. Uh, and if I'm not getting any from, anything from them, uh, then I'm not committed to them anymore. Uh, and in some circles, uh, it's, you know, the church's entertainment. Uh, well, this music, I don't like the worship of this church. You know, the music isn't exciting enough. Uh, in other churches, it's, well, the teaching isn't strong enough. Yeah, in other ones, it's, well, people aren't being friendly enough to me. You know, I want people to come up to me and greet me, not thinking, well, maybe I should be the one greeting other people. You know, I want other people to come and be nice to me. Every one of those is basically saying, um, I'm a user of people, and I want the church to provide me with something. And it's not a sense of I'm united to them, and I'm part of them. Now, it's interesting because in our society, we still do have, I would say, by and large, a sense of union with our families, so that we don't typically think of our kids that way. To say, well, this kid isn't providing me very much entertainment, so I'm going to cut them off. Right? <laughs> you know, that's not <clears throat> the way that we think normally. Uh, and if somebody does think that way, we think there's something wrong with them uh, often. Uh, but, I mean, that's basically the mentality of union with the church is the same way. It's these are your brothers and sisters in Christ, their family, and you just stick with your family because they're your family. Uh, and you don't cut them off uh, when they cease to provide entertainment or education or useful services for you. Uh, and yet our mentality is so much the other way uh, that we think uh, that our commitment is very conditional on what the church is providing for us. Um, another thing I would say is actually in our society, to a large degree, we're isolated, alienated, individualistic, and maybe don't even think of ourselves that way. But you can say, if you say, ask yourself, well, do I feel like anybody understands me? Do I feel like anybody would help me in a crisis? Uh, do I feel like I have close friends who I could share really terrible things with? Um, a very, very large fraction of Americans and a very, very large fraction of the church would say, no, I, I don't think anybody fits in that category. Uh, and so the sociological word for that is alienation, that we feel alienated. We feel like we're aliens uh, in a world which everybody else is in, but I'm sort of an outsider. And we live in a society in which a large number of people, maybe even a majority, feel, out, feel like they're outsiders uh, in a culture uh, and feel like there's nobody that they feel uh, especially connected to. Now, an exception is, I would say, in our culture, we still have a significant fraction of people, I'm not sure if you're the majority, uh, we have a significant fraction of people who have that sense of corporate identity with their families. And so you have some families that you know, get together every Sunday for dinner, and the kids and the grandparents and everybody is sort of all together. Uh, and then there's actually sort of an opposite problem uh, for those people in thinking about the church, which is that you know they'll typically something, say something along the lines of blood is thicker than water, that when it comes to push or shove, you support your family, 
And your primary identity is with your family, uh, for people in those groups. Uh, and of course, the, the Bible talks a lot about being part of our physical families uh, and being uh, uh, supporting them and so on. But it also says our allegiance to Christ is higher than that, that our, our relationship to Jesus uh, uh, is an even closer family. And so I put a couple verses down. I didn't write them out. But Jesus says things like, he who does not hate his mother or father compared to me uh, can't be my follower. Now, he doesn't mean go out and start being mean to your family. But he's saying, like, your allegiance to Christ has to be that much higher than your allegiance to your family, uh, that you should feel like literally my people are the church. Uh, and then also I have a foot in some other communities. Uh, so as a Christian, you would say your highest, I mean, who are you going to spend eternity with? You're going to spend eternity with the church. Uh, that is your highest connection. It's your highest sense of identity. But then we can say, well, I have my foot in other Camps, right? So I also am a member of a physical family. I'm also a citizen of a country, uh, of America, uh, or Vietnam. Uh, and um, you could say maybe I even have a sense of identity with my city of Pittsburgh or something like that. And so I might have multiple <coughs> identities. But <coughs> as a Christian, <coughs> our spiritual union <coughs> is our highest identity, our highest sense of corporate union or connection. Uh, and I didn't put this down actually in, in the um, outline, but sometimes the term covenant community uh, is used, which the word covenant, I think we talked about in previous weeks, has the idea of sort of a high and holy alliance uh, that we are bonded together. And of course, our covenant is with God, but by definition, that also covenants us together with each other since if we're all covenanted with him, then he's covenanted, and we're covenanted with each other uh, as well. So I put down this phrase, spirit is thicker than blood. So maybe blood is thicker than water, but the Holy Spirit is thicker than blood. That at the end of the day, when push comes to shove, um, if our family is doing things to put a wedge between us and Christ, we have to choose. Uh, now, God loves to work in families, and he loves to work in families where they all together follow Christ. But not every family is that way. <clears throat> and if it comes down to it, sometimes we may have to say, I follow Christ instead of what my family is doing. And that's very, very tough for just about everybody. Uh, there's a pastor I knew uh, back in um, uh, 20 years ago. And uh, he was raised Roman Catholic. And when he became uh, a Christian in his mind, uh, he joined a Protestant church. And his family would not let him in the front door of the house anymore. Uh, he had to sleep on people's couches until he could find uh, somewhere to go. Uh, and um, he ended up you know, having much better relationships with his family after a while. But initially, it was like he had to really make a decision. Am I really in this to follow Christ or not? Because they were like, you are dead to us. Uh, and you are not even allowed in. You're no longer in the family. Uh, and that was, that was really, really tough uh, for him. Uh, and um, it's true for a lot of people in the world. Uh, a lot of people have to say, uh, I could be persecuted by the government, by the state, you know, by my family uh, <clears throat> for, uh, for being a Christian. I have to say, 
gut check, what is my, what is my highest allegiance? And oftentimes, people are persecuted not just because I have a mental belief about God, but because of association with the church, because of being seen as one of them, right? And, uh, and they are this group that we don't trust. And so therefore, if I'm going to be associated with the church, I may be persecuted. Uh, let me pause here uh, and take uh, comments or questions on, on any of this. seems that anymore there are whole institutions of thought directed at undermining the whole social concept of family. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was saying that we generally, people have an idea of connection to their families, even though they no longer uh, as much have a sense of connection to their church. But I agree. I think that we're moving toward even lack of connection to our families. So that the idea of being connected to anyone is becoming a foreign concept for a lot of people in our society. Well, even you know the, the concept of a, a nuclear family is, is, is uh... yeah, yeah, yeah. And in some sense, <clears throat> you could say people have a user mentality of the church. I mentioned that, but. To some degree, there is an increasing user mentality of the family, especially with spouses, maybe not so much with kids, but people being like, well, I'll be married to you as long as you provide me with whatever uh, pleasure and support that I want, and if you cease to do that, then I'm out of here, right? And that's basically you know, the way a lot of people approach marriages. It's only as good as long as it's providing me something uh, and as soon as that's over, then I'm out. Uh, so we don't, in general, have a strong sense of really belonging. Um, well, even, uh, I'm trying to, to um, find a, a tactful way of you know, identifying um, even, even the, the new way forms of, of self-identification. Yeah. Of, uh, yeah. Of uh, gender ambiguity and, 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 and non-binary self-identification. Yeah. No, there's two two sides to that actually. So. But I mean, it's all being legitimized now. It's yeah. All being um, made the norm now. Yeah. So there's two ways of actually to think about that in terms of community. So at one level, you can say it's the ultimate alienation in which you say I define myself and then I demand society to conform to whatever I define for myself. Uh, but actually, in practice, I would say it almost works the opposite. Many people who have joined uh, the trans community or something like that actually feel like for the first time now I actually have a community, that they were feeling alienated. And by adopting one of these identities, they actually now feel they've been brought into something where they have a sense of community. And, and I think that's a very real motivation because for a lot of people, our society is generally alienated. And if you put yourself into one of these categories uh, as a special type of person, uh, you may be viewed as weird by some people, but on the other hand, you now have this community of other people like you that you feel uh, connected to. So for a lot of people, actually, these different self-identities become a way of getting community. Uh, they become a way of sort of taking the role of what the church is meant to be, uh, or even our families, to say, now I finally feel like 
I'm connected to somebody. Uh, because you're connected, all the other people have identified the same way. So I think that's uh, it's a very real thing. One of the things is so many times, so many ways that Jesus um, himself has, has, has clearly emphasized, you know, the importance of each other. Um, yes, yes. Uh, I've always seen Christianity as being the religion that occurs between people where every other faith that I can, that I know of, that I can think of is, you, you know, your, your spiritual relevance is based on purely in the, your individual perception and relationship with God and has nothing to do with anyone else around you. Well, it's interesting. So um, many religions, like, say, Buddhism, yeah. would the theology would be highly individualistic in terms of saying you're on this path of enlightenment, you have to sort of, you know, get your own karma. But in practice, uh, many people in other countries are far more communal in their thinking and that they all go to the Buddhist temple and bow down together. And so there's actually more of a sense of identity of the group than there would be in the United States in a lot of places like that. Even if, even though you would say sort of technically the theology would sound very individualistic, right. uh, in practice it doesn't uh, always work out that way. The same thing you could say about Islam. I, I had... Yeah. Uh, I had the opportunity to work for several years with, with a number of people of the, of the, of the Muslim faith, mm -hmm. you know, and we had many um, very in-depth conversations, discussions comparing Christianity to Islam and so forth, and and, and I would, you know, I, I would frequently be asked the question, or you know, that they didn't seem to understand the point of praying for each other. Mm. praying for mm -hmm. someone else mm -hmm. because it's all about their relationship with, with God. Yeah, it's interesting. And it's, how it's, they measure up as an individual and, and, and no amount of praying that you can do for anyone else is going to grant them any mercy. Yes, it is very interesting that on the one hand in Islam, they will insist that everybody stands before God on their own, based on their own deeds, and nobody can give anybody anything else. And yet, I would say, the appeal for a lot of people of Islam is that same sense of community, is that we're part of this massive number of people around the world, we're all on the same path together. So, uh, it is interesting, that, but I would say for many people, it's very much, the appeal is, uh, there's this massive world religion of Islam, and I'm part of it. Uh, but you're right, theologically they would say, Nobody can help you out spiritually. It's all your own road, uh, I mean, even, other than, say, teaching. Even offer a prayer for someone in need. Even, yeah, that's interesting. They would not say what good would be praying for somebody. That's yeah. interesting. Okay, I need to move on. Um, so one of the things that, uh, to narrow this down a little bit more, um, <clears throat> we can talk about the visible and the invisible church. The Indivisible church, you would say, and I think we talked about this a few weeks ago, is by definition everybody who literally has the Holy Spirit in their heart. Um, but since we can't see people's hearts, it's by definition invisible. So we can say there is such a body. We can make good guesses in some cases where we can say, I see by your fruits it looks like the Spirit is really at work in your life. So it's not like we know nothing. Uh, on the other hand, we don't know absolutely about, about anybody. On the other hand, the Bible talks a lot about the visible church, like the actual nation of Israel and the actual church. And both in Old Testament and New Testament, it goes out of its way to say that 
just membership in the visible church does not mean that you are saved and have a changed heart. Uh, and so um, there's a numerous passages in the Old Testament in which God says, I call all of you, but many of you hate me in your hearts, uh, and you are rejected. Uh, and uh, only a remnant will be saved. You know? And then in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, other places go out of their way to say, just the fact that you're in a Christian home, you know, you're baptized, does not mean that you have a heart that is really changed. And um, that uh, <clears throat> we need to uh, recognize that the church is a mixed body. And the, the parable Jesus tells of the wheat and the tares is like that, where he talks about the kingdom of God is like a field with real plants, but then there's also weeds. And it's not our business to try to get rid of all the weeds. Uh, that you know, We might say, okay, well, here's some especially bad weeds, but in general, we're not in the business of trying to sort it all out. Uh, God will sort it out at the end of the day. I'll come back uh, to that point in a little bit. So our commitment in the Bible is to the visible church, to actual other bodies of organized believers, uh, not just, just some invisible uh, church that we imagine. Because you know, I've met people who are like, oh, I'm committed to the invisible church. I just don't attend any actual church. <laughs> you know, And it's like, well, but in the Bible, you know, for instance, in the New Testament, there's dozens of verses that are what are called the one anothering verses. You know, do this to one another. Well, if you're never actually meeting one another, you can't obey any of those one anothering verses. You know, so there's an assumption in every one of those one anothering verses that you're actually meeting uh, uh, and getting to know people in the actual visible uh, church. Uh, and so it's not, so at one level, it's a spiritual reality that's true whether you like it or not, which is you are a member of the invisible church. On the other hand, there is a command to be part of the visible church uh, that we have to uh, obey. So we have, for instance, Hebrews 10, 24, uh, let us not neglect to meet one uh, meet together, as is the habit of son, but rather to meet to encourage one another. So we actually have a positive command to encourage other Christians, uh, not to just be users of them. Um, and um, in that picture of the body, that we are the body of Christ, <clears throat> you know, I, I think I skipped this point up above, this union of many people with Christ is given a lot of different pictures. There's the body. Uh, we're all organs, different organs in one body. Uh, there's another picture of we're all different stones. Uh, and uh, we're being built into a temple, and Jesus is the cornerstone. Uh, there's the picture of the kingdom of God, where Jesus is the king, and we're all citizens, and so on. Uh, in the part where it talks about the body, uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul says, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I have no need of you. So um, we, can't, we can't say that I don't need the church. Right? Uh, that would be like, according to the Apostle Paul, a foot saying I don't need the head. Uh, I, you know, I'm just going to be a foot on my own. And, uh, well, a foot on its own is not getting any blood, and it's going to die pretty quickly. Right? Uh, so the body all needs uh, the different parts. Uh, and so um, it's really not presented uh, uh, as optional. Uh, in, and there's numerous uh, verses. <clears throat> um, one of the ones that's more debated is uh, toward the end of uh, the Gospel of John, Jesus says, to you, the church, I give the keys of the kingdom. Uh, and whoever uh, wants to come to me has to come by way of you, essentially. Um, now, that has been sometimes abused you know, by the Catholic Church to basically say, like, we are the mediator and uh, we, you know, we stand between you and God. 
but I think there is still the truth that Jesus is saying is that um, there is no normal connection to Jesus without also being connected to the church. Uh, that you, it's to come to Christ to be united to Him is to be united to His His universal church, uh, and we can't bypass that. Um, that kind of takes us into the next topic on <clears throat> this list, which is well, what is the true church? How do we recognize it? Um, there's sort of two extremes that clearly can't be true uh, or can't be right. Okay, so. Um, one extreme would be to say that, um, so I'll say you're the true church, okay? So one would be to say that it's sinless, its leaders never sin, uh, it has perfect doctrine, uh, and it does everything right, right? Okay? And I will only accept the church as true if, it's, if those are true. Well, if that was the case, then there would be no true church anywhere, right? Because all of us are sinners, and every church is full of people who are in the process of being saved and are going to have sin. Uh, and there's going to be error not only from sin, but just from our finite minds just not understanding things. Uh, and so we can't say, I need the perfect church, or else just forget it. On the other hand, uh, we could say... It also can't possibly be the case that just any group of people who want to call themselves Christians counts as a church, right? So, you know, to take an extreme example, suppose there's like a Nazi enclave, okay, and they say, we are the church that stands for killing Jews, okay? Uh, we are not under an obligation to accept them as a true church, right? You know, like you, just, you can't just say anybody who just feels like using the name Christian can, can say that, right? You know? Um, clearly, there has to be some standards, okay? So, um, okay, so the opposite would be no standards whatsoever. Uh, and uh, just saying, go at it, do whatever evil you want, fine with us, <laughs> okay? So, um, those are two extreme endpoints, right? So, uh, the, the cutoff has to be somewhere in between, okay? So, basically, we have to be willing to say there is such a thing as a false church. The Bible, I put some verses down there, clearly talks about such things as false churches and, and uh, wolves among the sheep, wolves in sheep's clothing, uh, false Christians. So we can't say that just anybody who says I'm a Christian, we have to accept as a Christian. Um, because there clearly are people who would be diametrically opposed to uh, what Christ actually taught. Uh, uh, and on the other hand, um, you know, so here's the middle way, right? Uh, we we have to have some tolerance. So some people talked about the church uh, as like a hospital. Uh, if you go to a hospital and you say, this must be a lousy hospital because there are sick people here, you would say, well, that can't be right because the point of a hospital is to save people, right? So if the point of a church is to reconcile sinners to God, you're going to have sinners in the church, right? On the other hand, if you went in and everybody was just dead, you would say, this is not a hospital, this is a morgue, right? Uh, and so if you go into a church and everybody is just as simple as they possibly can be, uh, and there's no love for God whatsoever, you say, I'm not seeing a church here, you know, like, this can't be right, okay? So what you expect to see in a church is people who are on the process of being healed, like in a hospital, 
where you see people who have serious issues, but you also see evidence of repentance and life and spiritual life uh, and things like that that are going on, so that it's not like it's just completely dead either. Um, let me uh, pause for comments uh, at this point. Did you want to say something? Well, yeah, that's the, the, the process of healing. Yeah, um, yeah. Becoming that person. Um, right, and we don't know oftentimes where somebody came from. They may have been really broken and have have a lot that needs to change in their life just to become sort of uh, halfway healed. <laughs> you, know? Um, you know, sometimes people will meet somebody at the church and say, oh, that person really offended me, but they have no idea where that person used to be, you know, and actually God has really been working in that person's life to bring them a lot closer uh, to God and, uh, and to be a lot uh, less rude maybe than they used to be. You mentioned, you know, when we were talking about, you know, the, the church that lets everything go, you know, you mentioned, yeah. you know, even, even you know, the concepts of being a Nazi that's one of the things that I'm, I'm always um, curious about because, you know, Germany was a Christianized nation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, isn't Martin Luther himself, was he a product of Germany? Or yeah, I mean, you could say Martin Luther invented Protestantism in Germany. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and, and <coughs> even having gone the whole society having gone through that tradition from, let's say, Catholic domination and beginning mm-hmm. the, the birth of Protestantism. And, 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 and then, in the 20th century... It's amazing know, how rapidly it shifted. Somebody yeah. comes in and just immediately throws that all out the window. Yeah, so I mean, you usually what you can see when you see sudden changes like uh, like that, you can see actually other things that were going on for a long time before that. So Germany was one of the seats of the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment really, um, uh, at its core, for especially in Germany, was an atheist movement and saying that even if you're going to be a Christian, it has to be sort of marginalized to be sort of an irrelevant. So like an uh, Enlightenment uh, thinking pushed atheism but many people who were Enlightenment thinkers weren't necessarily fully atheists, but they would have said, your Christianity is just sort of like a window dressing. It doesn't actually affect any of your actual science or you know, of the uh, sort of important things of life. It's just sort of pushed and marginalized, and that's what we call the secular society. And so Germany was, for better or worse, sort of leaders in the intellectual movement of the Enlightenment in which it was like, we're going to do everything by pure, clear thinking and solve all the problems by science, and we're not going to let all that religious thinking of the old days um, you know, get in our way. Uh, and that was really the whole mentality of the Enlightenment, was um, better living through chemistry, you know, solving social problems by scientific analysis, uh, and really jettisoning any influence of the church on you know, real societal problems and saying, well, the church is just all about the dark ages and medieval, and we're modern scientific people. And so when you look at the Nazi movement, it came out of that mindset. So of course it went many steps further down the road than a lot of other Enlightenment people, but it basically was founded upon, and so was actual um, Marxist communism. Both of them have a common root in saying, what we gotta do is throw out all the old thinking, and we gotta bring in 
completely new thinking from scratch, just using our enlightened minds to think very clearly. Uh, and that was sort of the ethos. And so there was no constraint. So the problem with that in Germany, and also, say, in Stalinist Russia, was then there's no moral constraints for people to say, well, this just seems really immoral, because it could be shot down by saying, oh, you're, you're old-fashioned. Yeah, you're, you're not with the times. The times have said that this is the new, this is the new uh, ethic. Now, in addition to that, the Nazis also loved paganism. They resurrected all the old German paganism uh, and uh, really marginalized the church and brought, uh, like, all their soldiers, especially the SS, were into, like, the blood, religion of blood and soil, they called it, of sort of bringing back all the sort of pagan gods and uh, all this kind of stuff, which, if you remember, Northern Europe, before Christianity, was a bunch of bloodthirsty, in many cases, cannibals, uh, and, and, and really um, bloodthirsty tribal people. And so they're bringing back this mentality of to be a real man is to be a killer. Uh, and so that was stuff that they resurrected uh, right out of that. Um, but at the same time, you could say the church didn't utterly vanish during this time. And so uh, the church, in some ways, was neutralized by all of the liberal theology that was going on, in which people were saying, well, you know, the Bible isn't exactly true. It's just kind of sort of true. And you know, people like Barth saying, well, I read this passage, and this is true for me, but this other part isn't really true for me. You know? And so they're picking and choosing. And so um, it really was only the sort of what we would call fundamentalists who opposed uh, Hitler. And the bulk of the church wasn't exactly for him although many were, uh, but many of them were just kind of like, well, we can't exactly, we don't have a, a moral position to stand on to say why he's wrong, uh, because nothing was absolutely certain uh, in their theology anymore. Uh, but yeah, I was living in Germany and met some of the people in the 90s who were still alive, who had been alive during the time of Hitler, and talking about, it was a small handful of fundamentalist Christians who were the ones who stood up, and there's a movie, Sophie Scholl. If everyone wanted to watch a great movie, watch Sophie Scholl that came out of Germany a few years ago. We're a little bit off track here, but um, that's a good tangent to go on. It's really fascinating stuff. Um, okay, so given the fact that there is such a thing as false church, false church, how do we then identify a real church without being so judgmental that there no church can measure up for us? Uh, and I, uh, um, so there's three things that. So in the Reformation, of course, they were faced with this because the Catholic Church claimed to be the only true church, and uh, then they kicked them out, and they said, well, we actually think the Catholic Church is a false church. Uh, so then it became, well, then what is, how do you identify a true church? And so there's three things that they said were pretty crucial, not to say that there's nothing else to look at, um, but they have three uh, signs of a true church that typically get quoted from that era. Uh, one is uh, faithfulness to the Bible, okay, that is founded on the Bible, and that um, the Bible is presented as true, and people actually try to follow what it says. Um, and uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that they all read their Bibles correctly, and that they get it right, and their theology is perfectly biblical. But it says at least, what is their starting point? Like, are they starting from the Bible uh, to know about God? Were they starting somewhere else and saying, well, these are the things we want to believe, and now we're sort of forcing the Bible into agreeing with whatever we wanted to believe anyway. 
right? So um, in some sense, it's the starting point. And the verse which is crucial for this is in Ephesians, where it says the church is founded on the uh, teachings of the prophets and the apostles, all right? That they're the foundation uh, on which everything else is built. Uh, and um, so, again, there may be disagreements among Christians about the proper way to interpret the Bible, but if their starting point is at the same place to say, well, we, we test everything by the Bible, then you can say at least they're on the same page with us. You know, we're, we're working from the same approach. Uh, and uh, we talked a few weeks ago about Jesus really saying everything, you know, really the word of God is, uh, is what stands uh, as the foundation of the church. And he, of course, treated the Old Testament scriptures with great, uh, uh, great honor. Um, so that's criterion one. Okay, the second uh, is something I'm actually going to punt because I'm going to do a whole lesson on it next week. The sacraments uh, are done, I put down in a, um, what I say, in a proper and sober way, uh, that the sacraments are administered uh, properly. And again, that doesn't mean they get everything right. I mean, so there may be disagreements about the sacraments among Christians, but you could say, the church practices the sacraments, baptism and communion, uh, as really you could say it is a unifying thing. You know, Jesus, or Paul says, right, there is one baptism uh, and one supper. You know, that uh, there's not, you know, even though we may have differences about this and that, that we have the, the, the sacrament uh, and the, uh, the baptism as things that draw us together, that unite us uh, among uh uh, different uh, denominations and so on. Uh, and then the third one, in some sense, is a uh, maybe a, a, um, uh, a catch-all. Um, yeah, one call it uh, church discipline, which sounds like a negative thing, but it, it fundamentally means there is such a thing as an inside and an outside, uh, that the church actually take some care to define who is a Christian uh, in their midst. Um, if you think about it, if you don't do that, then you really aren't anything, right? So if you say, well, you know, um, you know, Joe down the street who never attends church and who believes in Buddha, um, he, he calls himself part of our church and we are fine with that. You know, well, then you really have no definitions of anything, right? And so how could you even call that a church? That's, you know, it might be a club or an affiliation or something like that. But uh, one of the things that comes across very clearly in Scripture is that there is the people of God and not the people of God. Uh, and there are people who belong and people who reject. Uh, and one way to talk about this is, you know, inside and an outside. Um, and so even, in, even if there's a lot of sin uh, in the church, or false teaching, or bad teaching at least, okay, you could say if there is a process of correction by which people can be called to repentance and see the error of their ways, at least there's hope that they can change toward being closer to the truth, right? Whereas if you don't even have such a process, then there's no way for people to change because nobody's even being called to change. And, to, and, and, and so the classic verse for this is uh, in 1 Corinthians uh, 5, and um, I don't have it in front of me, but 
Paul basically says, what business is it of mine to judge uh, unbelievers outside the church? It's not my business at all. But it is our business to judge those inside the church to call them to do what is right, uh, and uh, if they refuse, to put them outside the church. Uh, and there's a similar passage in, uh, that Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 18, where he says, if you see your brother in sin, go to him, call him to repent. If he refuses, then go, to, go with somebody else. If he still refuses, go to the elders. Uh, and if he continues to refuse, then put them outside the church and treat them as an unbeliever, which doesn't mean hate them. It means you say they're not giving us any sign they're a Christian. Uh, and so um, it sounds like a very negative thing, but if you don't have a definition of the outside, you can't have a definition of the inside, uh, that you have to have some standards by which you say, you know, again, like, I mean, you know, to, again, to take an extreme example, somebody says, well, you know, um, uh, there's this whole group of uh, Nazis that's part of your church, and you're not doing anything about it, so you must be the Nazi church, right? Uh, or KKK members, for that matter, right? You know, uh, and um, and you know, a typical response would be, they're not part of our church, right? Like we have never approved them to say that. Well, if you have no membership, and everybody can just call themselves a member of your church just because they feel like it then you can't avoid that, right? You could just have a bunch of people doing whatever and say we're part of this church, and, and you have no recourse but to accept them. Um, so um, in some sense, you could say this third one is a corrective to make sure the first two are on track. Like It gives a means for keeping you on the track of the first two, uh, of, of what you call error correction. Uh, and it's never meant to be perfect. Again, like if we were to say, well, everybody who has some sin they haven't repented of in their life uh, should be put out of the church. Like we would be going around, you know, kicking each other out of the church all the time, <laughs> right? So we, we, we are not on a mission to root out and find every sin and, and expunge people from the church, you know, at, at a moment's notice. On the other hand, there has to be some process by which you say if something becomes publicly, scandalously known, uh, and or really a danger to somebody, like we have to have some means of correction uh, for that to, to bring people back into track. And the we don't have any punishments per se other than putting people out of the church. Like we, we don't say, well, okay, we're going to give you 40 lashes for that sin, right? Um, but <clears throat> the punishment is to say, you're acting like a non-Christian, so we'll treat you like a non-Christian. Um, but it's actually not even judging their soul to say, we know you're a non-Christian. We're simply saying, by outward signs, you're giving us no evidence of being a Christian, so we're going to treat you as such. Uh, some people in practice are highly offended by this, and I think this again goes to our individualistic society. So I <clears throat> was on session for 20 years of this church and another church, and uh, in almost every case, if the elders called somebody to uh, to appear before the elders and say, uh, we believe that you were in unrepentant sin about something, they'd be highly offended and say, how dare you judge me? And they would leave the church. There would never actually be a church discipline meeting because they wouldn't show up at the meeting. And it would not just be, I disagree with you. It would be, how dare you even call me to account? Who do you think you are to tell me what to do with my life? 
that would be overwhelmingly what, what typically would happen. Uh, I can only think of a couple cases when somebody actually stayed and listened to the elders. And so in general, as much as we may give lip service in our vows to submitting to the elders, belonging to the church, in practice, m most people, when called to account, they're just out of there. you know. And it's similar to like the thing with divorce, right? If you offend me, I'm out of here. Uh, and, um, and again, that idea of saying, how dare you tell me what to do? is so individualistic, right? It's the whole point of the church, is that we encourage each other and tell each other what to do. Like, again, not to be mean and judgmental about it, but we are called to encourage one another to good works daily, right? We are not supposed to just be independent agents doing our own thing. Uh, so part of being in a body is letting people talk to you about things that are, are going on in your life. Uh, it doesn't mean you have to agree, but if you give them the right to speak into your life, uh, and, and you may say, I think you're wrong, but you can't say you have no right to speak to me. Uh, because by definition, if they're a Christian, uh, you're united to them, they can speak into your life. Um, I will say this also. Um, <clears throat> having said that there are false churches, and so I would say, like the Jehovah's Witnesses of false church, I would say the Roman Catholic Church is a false church, it does not mean that everybody in those churches is going to help. Uh, you could be a true believer in the invisible church in a false visible church um, because people make mistakes, right? And so somebody may think this is what they need to do. Um, now, not every church returns the favor, right? So some of those churches uh, would say, no, everybody in your church is going to hell. <laughs> okay, but we would say uh, in our church, and I think the Bible speaks this way, that somebody could be a believer but in an organization which is really going the wrong direction altogether and running away from God. So before there was the Protestant church and the Catholic church was going way off the rails, it had plenty of believers in it, uh, and they were doing good things. Uh, and it's not like when the Reformation happened, there was now suddenly no more believers in the Catholic church, uh, and all of them became reformed. Some people, I would say mistakenly, continued on in the Catholic church. Uh, but because we would say you could be a believer who makes dumb mistakes, and we all do, right? And so sometimes I would say somebody could make a dumb mistake about, I've seen people in what I would call Protestant cults, where they end up in a tiny little church with like 20 or 30 people, <clears throat> in which it's really acting like a cult in many ways, in which you have a leader who just runs everybody's lives, is abusive to them, uh, is getting away with all kinds of sin himself, and I would say that is a false church and a cult, but I wouldn't say that all the people in it are unbelievers. I would say that sometimes I've seen people I firmly believe are believers being sucked into a cult-like group like that, thinking that they were doing the right thing. Uh, and so it happens. Uh, go ahead. What about being born into a church? I mean, yes. you know, you're born into a church, you live it your whole life, you know, and, and, and for a period of time, you may be in a state of, of conversion as you're learning about other views of Christianity. And I kind of went through much of that myself. I, yeah. mean, I was born into an Italian Catholic family. I went to Catholic elementary school, right. high school, and, and college, then ended up Presbyterian in the end. Through that learning process, I understood that Christianity is a, a broader thing 
than, than, than just one church. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's a very common uh, story. And um, I think that, um, <clears throat> you know, when we, again, go back to the fact that it's about God drawing people to himself, it's not about us saving ourselves, then you can say, God could do that in multiple ways. So he might start with somebody in a church which had a lot of error in it, I mean, I've also known people who grew up, for instance, in extremely legalistic fundamentalist churches, yeah. where it was like if you step out of line, like you are condemned immediately. And they grew, as they grew as Christians, they started to realize this is not true Christianity. Right. Uh, and they left that church, but they didn't leave Christ. You know, And they ended up in a different uh, denomination. But they were able to see that the church, the universal church, is bigger than just my little branch of it. Um, but they would still say... There were something. There were some good things about my upbringing. Like they would still say, I learned some things from that church, and they wouldn't say it was all just you know terrible. Uh, they would say actually many good things came out of that, in many cases. I, I, I think that a lot of times when you see that kind of um, draconian legalism, mm-hmm. you know, what you're really seeing is is a body that that seeks to impose domination. Yeah, it's a lot of times about... Than salvation. It's, it's like that. Um, you mentioned the KKK before. The KKK identifies themselves as a Christian body. Yeah, it's not scary. They do. You know, yeah. um, you know, and they think that they're bringing salvation to the world by ridding the world of... Yeah, right. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that is... Um, <clears throat> those are all good examples of um, of the um, diversity, you could say, and yet God can pull people from from all of those uh, different backgrounds. Um, It kind of actually connects to the next topic. This is the last one, and then we should cut it off. Um, I I put down here, you know, the Bible is unabashedly in favor of organized religion. You know, again, in our individualistic stage, we like to say, well, I like Jesus, but I don't like the church. You know, I, I and a lot of times, what that really means is I want to do whatever I want, and uh, I can make Jesus into what I want him to be. But you know, Christians, I can't manipulate in the same way. Uh, and so, uh, very much, a lot of times that becomes, I don't actually like the Jesus of the Bible. I like the Jesus that I make up in my mind, uh, and I'm going to go with him. Um, so. All through Scripture, old and new, you have priests, you have pastors, you have teachers, you have leaders of the church uh, who are leading it uh, in various ways, uh, and they are given a a mandate uh, to do that. Um, At the same time, there are some checks and balances, you could say. Uh, And this is where I would say I've seen people in churches that didn't have these checks and balances go very, very badly. Uh, so one is the pattern of church leadership that Christ gives us is what you could call servant leadership. He is the primary example of someone who laid down his life for his sheep, right? He's not someone who's dominating them uh, and, and uh, using them to make himself happy. Rather, he is you know, using himself to, to help them. And so the pattern for leadership that's all through uh, Scripture is that your leaders should be the best servants. Uh, they shouldn't be people who are lording it over other people. Um, so if you go to a church and the leaders are lording it over people and they're giving commands, you say, well, this is a red flag. <laughs> you know, They don't seem to be getting 
step one of the Bible, which says, you know, servant leadership is the is the way it goes. Well, Jesus also says a lot about rituals and, 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 and the um, establishment of, of edifices to be, you know. Right, the traditions of men and, and yeah. so on. Yeah, well, and, and, and even in, in, in the religious context, you know, he, uh, you know, the, the wording prayers uh, are not what God, God wants to hear, you know, and, and, and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so many times it, it, it seems like he, he rebukes people for falling back on the rote behavior. Right, right, yeah. And even, even in terms of like a, a high liturgical church service, you know, people, there are denominations that have, you know, that rely on that like they're, they're a solid anchor and other denominations that have totally thrown any anything any anything that represents any kind of repetition out the window right right and that's why i would say you know the signs of the church true church we talked about are pretty minimal right because they don't say the worship service needs to look exactly like this or you know whatever there's a lot of areas of freedom uh for christians and actually this takes me to my last point here about denominations, um, a lot of times I've talked to people who are like from Orthodox Catholic backgrounds and like, oh, all you Protestants all hate each other and you're dividing all the time into these splinter groups. That's not really an accurate picture of Protestantism because, in fact, uh, most of those denominations, except the other ones as being part of the true church, they're just not organizationally uh, connected into one massive structure. Um, and so. You can say a denomination is one in which you literally have checks and balances on your leadership, that there are other people in a denomination. So if your local pastor or elders go off the rails, there's other people who can be called in to say, what's going on here? Uh, and so you have these sort of denominational structures. But in Protestantism in general, there's not a huge motivation in getting everybody into one massive structure together. Uh, and partly because of seeing the abuse of that, when you have a massive power structure like the Catholic Church or uh, or communist government, for that matter, you know unity sounds good on paper. You know when you say one massive bureaucracy runs everything, that might sound good on paper. But our experience is that oftentimes it's better not to have one massive bureaucracy running everything. Um, and um, so generally in Protestantism there are affiliations of different denominations. Well, they'll say well. You know, we recognize this other denomination as a church. We are just not going to be organizationally connected to them. But they're not working against each other to try to defeat each other. They're just saying, we're going to do this, you do that, and we'll just sort of, you know, cooperate on some things uh, and not on other things. Uh, in general, I put this down, the church has authority over spiritual matters and over defining its own membership. <coughs> um it's not meant to be a worldly power broker. And that same verse, actually, I talk about in 1 Corinthians 5 applies here. Paul says not only to call those in the church to repentance, he also says, what business is it of mine to call those outside the church? Right? So that, that the church is not, um, as such, about judging the world. Now, that doesn't mean that Christians should be utterly non-political or things like that. But you say, in some sense, they're doing that on their own time. Like the church as such is not a political player. Uh, and um, uh, it's, again, not to say there's anything wrong. But you know, in the same way, we might say, well, the church as such doesn't typically set up scientific labs. 
right? Now, is it wrong for Christians to do science? No. I mean, that's a perfectly good thing to do. But he would say it's mission creep if the church says, we got to put a lot of money into setting up scientific labs. You'd say, like, this is not core to who the church is, right? You know, in the same way, you could say, well, if Christians are involved in farming or politics or law or being soldiers, like, all of that is fine and good, but it's not a core mission of the church as the church. Uh, and so when you get this sort of mission creep, oftentimes that's when things go off the rails because now you have this power structure and you have non-Christians muscling their way in because they see power there. Uh, even uh, though they don't really care anything for the gospel, they see there's a power structure and they, they it's attractive and they, and they start to worm their way in uh, into those organizations. So a lot more that could be said, but I should probably uh, uh, cut it off. Uh, so I'll stop recording here and uh, take a few more Q&A.